Well, good morning, and I'm glad you've joined us. Um, we kind of scramble here at the beginning here with our And um, as Scott mentioned, we are still kind of looking at numbers and asking the question of when do we try to do in-person again without doing in-person for a couple of weeks and then going back to online only. Um, so we are planning for a decrease in the numbers that we will be coming back in person and hopefully from now on. Um, and so it's still too early to tell what all of that is going to be. Um, I will tell you we've got some exciting things planned over this next year. Uh, and this series that we're in now called Emotions is just part of a resetting point for many of us to prepare for what is coming. And uh, we've talked so far in our emotion series about anger and anxiety. Uh, and I've tried to share with you a couple of perspectives. One is my own um, and the way that I deal with these emotions or how I feel them. Um, and also I, we've talked very specifically about these emotions are emotions that Jesus not only felt, but he demonstrated how we are supposed to feel them. And uh, so I, I do try to be, I'm trying to be more vulnerable and honest with you, but th there's kind of a point that the pastor has to not tell you everything, like tell you all the ways I deal with anxiety and all the ways I anger, because I want you to see that I struggle, but I don't want you to look at me and think Mark needs like real help. <laughs> so I do feel like I'm for the most part, if you begin to worry, because I know pastors don't typically share some of their struggles, um, I want to share those through, especially these first weeks of emotions. And I will tell you that our goal is not to be all in the, you know, kind of the ditch with the emotions, all the bad ones, we are going to move to some of the positive emotions. And then how do we get there? Um, how do we experience those? Because Jesus experienced the lows and the highs. Um, and he shows us how to kind of walk through that as well. Um, and there's also just the part of this that we recognize within the church world, we sometimes don't allow for people to be people. We don't allow for humanity to be humanity and to recognize that we do struggle with all of these things. We do struggle with anger. We do struggle with anxiety. And that does not make us less than. Uh, it's just the fact of life. And today what I want to talk to you about is one that I think a lot of us are feeling and have felt. And I'm, I want to share some things with you because I, I think that uh, in the area of sadness, we're feeling it in a lot of different ways. And then it's expressing itself in lots of other ways. And we can't always pinpoint exactly what's making us sad. I mean, we can say, well, it's COVID or it's whatever. But there is also kind of a general malaise over us in which we just struggle to understand that. So um, part of my hope throughout this is not just that we get down in the ditch and we stay there, but Jesus demonstrates that he has a way for us to move forward. And today I want to share with you several things from the Old Testament and the New, but um, in the Old Testament, we see there are a lot of Jewish practices for dealing with sadness um, that I think we can learn from today. And at the, at the end of this, what I hope to share with you is that there are really two primary focuses of sadness that we're going to try to work through today. And one is being sad over those things that we have some control over, we can do something about. But then the deeper sadness are usually those things that we have no control over and there's nothing we can do about. And then how are some of those Jewish practices things we can do today that will help us move through 
our sadness because God does not desire for us to stay in it, but he also doesn't want us to avoid it. And just like when we talked about anxiety, as we talk about sadness, we have to recognize there are different levels. So one person is sad over one thing. Another person is sad over another. Sometimes our own sadness doesn't equate to the same degree as someone else's sadness. And so we have to do, you know, kind of recognize that up front. You know, for example, uh, I've got some pictures up here that are kind of sad pictures that kind of point to different things that we can be sad about. Like the first one um, is this puppy. Like that's sad, isn't it? And just at home, you probably said exactly what happened for those people that are here in the building and just, oh, that's like cute and sad. And you've probably seen it on your child's face when they wanted something they knew they weren't going to get, right? So that's kind of a level of sadness. It's kind of this cute puppy. Maybe another level of sadness is this next slide. When you drop your ice cream. Right? That's a level of sadness. If you've ever had a toddler drop their ice cream, sadness turns to rage very quickly. <laughs> right? So that's a little more sad than what uh, seeing the sad puppy. Next one. If you've ever experienced having a helium-filled balloon and then you lose your grip. I remember one time we had gotten balloons for a birthday party for somebody years ago. I can't remember. And we stuffed them in the car like so many people do. And now you can't even see out the windows. But I was stuffing them in the car and I didn't have them all tied together. And a, wind, a gust of wind came by and blew all my balloons away. And I just stood there like a child looking in the middle of the parking lot up as my balloons just floated to the sky. You probably can say awe to that too. You can picture that. You've been there. That's a level of sadness, maybe not a deep level of sadness, but there is um, a level of sadness there. Maybe for some of you, some of our teens, college students, and some, maybe some adults, here's another level of sadness, right? Your phone breaks. We've, we've had many screens replaced in our family, and it is always a sad moment for everyone. So that's another level of sadness. But, you know, these are, are kind of relatable, fun things, but some levels of sadness are a little more profound, maybe like this level of sadness. That's kind of a more profound level of sadness for some of us today, and I guess we could have Phil Fulmer yeah, up there as well. Um. I have texted Jeremy Pruitt and asked if he would bring me some McDonald's, and we'll see if he shows up with a bag at my house. I doubt it. But that's a level of sadness. I don't know what your level of sadness is, but these are sad everyday occurrences that don't maybe necessarily touch us so deeply. And then there are things that happen in the world that bring on a whole deeper level of sadness. Perhaps like this image, when you look at that, there's a, there's a stop in us. There's a dropping of our stomachs. There's a guttural reaction to this. And for those who have lost a loved one in the military, there's even a deeper sadness that is not just something that we say, yeah, that's, that's awful, but yet our whole body responds and kind of 
closes in and kind of a protective shell because all of a sudden our heart begins to ache. And even though I don't know this this young girl and, and I don't know uh, presumably a family member or husband, I'm sure you all may have seen this video and know who that is, but for them the level of sadness is really profound. Throughout this season, several of the folks in our church have dealt with some deep, deep sadness, the loss of people that they really care about. We have a couple of families that we're praying for as a church, as as Karen and their family are walking through the challenges of her brother being in such difficult uh, shape with COVID. And uh, we heard this week from the Shriner family and uh, Jessica's uh, grandfather, I believe, is, is struggling and may not make it um, very elderly with COVID and are having to deal with the issues of family not being around. That The level of sadness that comes there is very real. It's, it's not just a concept. It's felt. Our heart beats a little differently. Our, our adrenaline races a little differently. Our stomachs all of a sudden feel hollow and empty and and then our own minds struggle to just comprehend and grasp how sad this really is. One of the questions that sometimes comes up in the church, and I've heard sermon after sermon after sermon about how to be sad, and sometimes they're really not helpful sermons, right? And, And let's just be honest, and if I'm totally honest, I've preached some of those really unhelpful sermons over the years where we simply say, just have faith in Jesus and he'll take all your sadness away. Which is like putting a Band-Aid over a deep, a deep gushing wound. Reality is, is that sadness is a real part of this. And the reason we're going through these emotions right now is because uh, there truly is a season for everything within our lives. Some seasons get drawn out longer than others. We've been in a season with COVID. We're coming up on a year with this. We've been through a season of COVID, and we're not exactly sure when that season is going to end. We feel like it might be coming to a conclusion, but we just don't know. We kind of felt like maybe it was getting better at one point, and then it got way worse. So is it going to get way worse again? Probably not, but could it? Maybe. My hope is is that we do prepare for that post-COVID season by dealing with where we are right now. And over this next year, we are going to be doing things a little differently when it comes to teaching and when it comes to your involvement, what it looks like for us to do discipleship. Uh, and, And part of that is for us to reset and kind of relaunch as a church. But the reality is is that if we're going to be able to do that, we have to be in a space, both in our heads and in our hearts, that we are able to move forward, that we are able to say, yes, this was a thing. Let's, let's hope that this thing doesn't happen again in our lifetimes. But let's be prepared to move forward in a healthy way because we have whole communities who are struggling without hope, and they need the church to be at its best in a time where we can kind of re-enter normal life, whatever normal is going to be. So my hope is through this series on emotions, we're not just talking about these things, but they're, they're things that you're working through. So for example, I hope that if you're a person who struggles with anxiety, you've kind of 
been working on the thing behind the thing for anxiety. What's pushing that? What are the things you can do something about? I shared from my own experience that anxiety, sometimes sometimes there's nothing I can do about it. But there are times that it alerts me that there's something I need to do. There's maybe a relationship I need to work on. Maybe there's, uh, you, you know, if, if, if finances is the issue, maybe I need to re-imagine um, and focus on my finances or, or work or things like that. If it's the church, maybe we need to talk about church differently so there are sometimes that anxiety clues us into things we need to change because God does not want us to stay in that place of anxiety all the time. Yet when we are, he's not judging us for it. But he's calling us towards something else. Same with anger. I, I don't know if you've worked on, I've had, I've had a lot of conversations over the last week about, about anger with people that have just been really engaged with these topics and, and, and what, you know, what they've struggled with themselves. Are you at the point or have you this last week thought about when you maybe got a little ticked off, why? You see, because anger is not the first emotion. It's, it's always the caboose of the train. There's something else driving our anger. Can you figure out what's driving it? Because if you just address anger and not what's driving it, anger will never go away. Or if it does go away, it's just for a short time, but it'll flare right back up. So have you taken time to think about what is the thing behind the thing? I shared with you for myself, uh, sometimes you know the anger is, is just deep wounds. It hurts for me. You know, One of the things I struggle with is uh, if someone uh, tries to diminish or demean or treats me like I don't matter, I, I get angry, and, and that's where we put that shield up. I put that shield up because somewhere deep inside of me, I don't necessarily feel as confident as some people think I am or... I don't always feel as valuable as you would think a pastor would consider themselves. I, I don't. And I recognize that. And sometimes my anger, as I lash out, I have to stop and say, why am I doing this? It has nothing to do with them. And if we as the body of Christ are going to point people to something better, then there's a place where we have to then not only ask, what's the thing behind my thing? We have to ask, what's the thing behind their thing? So that we can then be a help rather than just escalating it by bouncing anger off of the other. And sadness, sadness is a, a constant way of life for many people. You, if you are going to live and you are going to love, you are going to experience sadness. If you are not going to be a hermit in a hole, which is very sad, you are going to struggle with sadness. As I, I've thought back over um, things to share with you, and and you know, I, I'm. I want to share some things. I don't always share kind of the deep things that I still work through with God over. But um, over the years, you know, we've struggled with sadness. There's been different points of sadness. As I look back through my life, I remember the first time I actually felt deeply sad. I was a kid. I was 10 years old. It was Christmas Day. And my my dad's mother who had come down and spend Christmas with us every year, uh, on, on Christmas night, she, laying on the couch in our den, looked over to my mom and my dad and just said, I'm dying, and died on my couch Christmas night. I remember a profound sense of sadness because it was the first moment that I had to deal with someone I knew and cared about and was a regular part of my life no longer was. And that was sadness. She was elderly. So there's a part of you that says, well, that's just kind of how life goes. But I remember a few years later, I was in high school and a 
a friend who sat right next to me in one of my classes, one, one day he wasn't there and he had to ask what happened to my friend and he had been in a car accident that week and he died. It was another layer of sadness because now that sadness was not just I'm sad that this has happened and I've, my friend is no longer here. I'm sad because now I'm thinking about my mortality, right? Like I didn't know someone that age could die like that. I just assumed we all lived to a ripe old age. It was another layer of sadness. I've had other times of sadness within my life. I remember going into seminary and we had a I had a really great friend in seminary. We did a lot of stuff together. We laughed together. Our families did stuff together. Just uh, just was a joy. It was so much fun. I mean, it was, uh, of the whole of my life, it was a highlight. Not the highest, but it was a highlight. Just a wonderful, exciting time until we came to find out that my best friend's wife was sleeping with another seminary student, and I had to go share that with him. And in his tears and his brokenness, oh, it was so sad. We worked with them for the next few months, didn't end up, they're fine now, that was 20 years ago, but they did end in, their marriage did end in a divorce. I remember our friend group, we all went to church together, and uh, one of the leaders of, of our church group asked me to just talk about what had happened with our friends and just process, because we were all struggling, and I remember getting up to just talk about the sequence of events of my friend and the hurt and the pain and the disappointment, and I just remember weeping. We, I just wept as I tried to just talk about what we were going through. And for a, for a grown man to weep talking about something is not really, you know, culturally acceptable, but it's a way of life when you deal with sadness. I remember just weeping over talking about that. I, I remember a time when I was at work and Deidre called me and she had had a visit. She was pregnant with our first child and she called and it was just a normal visit. It didn't go with her and she said, Mark, we can't find a heartbeat. And so they're sending me to have a DNC, which is to remove the pregnancy. And I remember jumping in my car and racing to the hospital and sitting in the in the foyer of the hospital with tears streaming down our faces. And it's still to this day, though that's over 20 years ago, brings feelings of sadness within me. As a pastor, one of the things I think is interesting is pastors sometimes like to pretend that they're above such things, and we're not above such things. Sadness is a part of life, whether you're sad because your life hasn't worked out exactly the way you thought it would, which, spoiler alert, is most of us. Most of us, when we're kids, think we're going to live this perfectly easy, wonderful, affluent life, and we find out it's hard. (laughs) Adulting is hard, and most people don't live the way that they tell you you're supposed to live when you watch the Disney Channel as a kid, right? Maybe you're dealing with sadness in different ways. Pastors tend to try to pretend like we're always happy. We're not always happy. It's a lie when a pastor says you're supposed to always be happy because Jesus saved us. Yes, there's a a joy. We'll talk about joy another day. But there's real sadness in us. I get sad when I think about people that have been a part of our fellowship and they leave and 
Sometimes it's a good leaving. Sometimes they go off to do ministry somewhere else. Sometimes it's because they move and they got a new opportunity for their family, and that's a good thing. Sometimes they just leave because they get upset or have disappointed them or somebody in the church has disappointed them, and it is, I feel sadness. I, I still see every face that has ever been really invested in our church that's no longer here. I see that. There's sadness there. I I feel sadness when somebody struggles. I feel sadness when I go to do a funeral. The worst funeral I ever did was for a child, and uh, you're just not meant to go to a funeral where there's just a tiny little casket there. I, I remember preaching that funeral, and just, I feel like, I feel like I can handle most things. I, I almost didn't get through that funeral. There's just sadness. Why, why am I telling you all this? I'm not telling you all this because I think this is a good place to be. I'm telling you this because it's a normal place to be. And sometimes in the church we say, if you're feeling anxious, it's a sin. If you're feeling anger, it's a sin. If you're feeling sad, it's a sin. And the question is, is it a sin to be sad? I struggle with sadness at times. One of the things we've tried to point through this is that Scripture is ripe with examples of godly people who struggle through these hard things. Listen to this. This is in Ecclesiastes. Talk about, is, sin, is, is it a sin to be sad? Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, and the sea is never full. Then the water runs again to the rivers and flows out to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. (laughs) That's just to open the book. There's more if you want to read. And in fact, did you know there's a whole book called How to Be Sad? (laughs) It's called Lamentations. It's all about lamenting. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for meaningless is vapor. So, so meaningless, instead of meaningless, uh, I, saw, I saw another pastor do this. I don't know if you can see this online. You can probably see it in here. But this is, this is the word for meaningless in Ecclesiastes. That. Just that. You see, I don't know if you can see this online. Go get a spray bottle and spray it in your house. You'll play along with me. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Life is meaningless. Work is meaningless. Sadness is meaningless. My day-to-day routine is meaningless. It's just a vapor that disappears. What are the things in our lives that just feel meaningless? Maybe it's a relationship Maybe it's a situation. If you read later in Ecclesiastes, 
Solomon will say, I have sought, I have sought wisdom, and with great wisdom all it has brought me is grief. It's not a sin to be sad. But you're not supposed to stay there. When we look to, well, who can we look to to help us get through this? I want you to recognize that Jesus experienced great sadness. Jesus experienced great sadness. There are two times. Well, Isaiah 53.3 is a prophecy about Jesus who is coming, describing the kind of life that Jesus would lead. And it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. How does it make you feel to know that Jesus was a man of sorrow and that he was acquainted with grief? Because sometimes we invite people into the gospel. And we say something really ridiculous like, if you will ask Jesus to be your Savior, you will never be sad again. We say that kind of stuff. And it's, it's trash, total trash, totally untrue. If you'll just give your heart to Jesus, everything will be just fine. He's going to take care of everything in your life. If you ask for anything, he's going to... Give it to you. And you're just going to be the happiest person on earth. And oh, what a bill of goods that is totally false. Because Jesus himself was a man acquainted with sorrow. Or he was a man of great sorrow acquainted with grief. Now that does not mean that that was his life. And that's what I want us to see throughout this. But if you're feeling sad right now, I think there's a number of reasons why. And I want to share a big one uh, just about the pandemic that you may not be able to put your finger on, but maybe you're struggling with that makes you feel sad, but is actually a catapult for something really great in your life. Do you know within a scripture, Jesus wept twice that we know of. He probably wept other times, but he he cried at least twice because we have two places that clearly said he cried. The first one... um, is when Jesus hears that Lazarus is dead, and he kind of walks in, and everyone is just destroyed. And there's professional mourners there, and there's um, you know his friends who are like, Jesus, where were you? We needed you, and now Lazarus is dead. And we find that in John 11:35. If you grew up in the church memorizing scripture, this was the very first scripture we all memorized. Simply said, Jesus. Can we just take a moment for you to take whatever image of Jesus you have? Maybe it's European Jesus that was on our grandparents' wall, you know, long, flowy hair, very pale, white complexion, a totally false image of what Jesus would have looked like. Maybe that's it. Maybe you're more a little more researched and you've got the picture of a true Jewish Jesus of what he would look like and how he would dress and his hair and all the things that he would do. Or maybe maybe culturally it's easier for you to understand Jesus in your culture and maybe you have a Latino Jesus in mind or maybe you have an African-American Jesus in mind, whatever. 
picture you have, most of the pictures we have is a stoic, unfeeling, unemotional Savior that we feel called to emulate. But can you just picture whatever that picture is within your head? Weeping. I I don't mean, you know, like in the TV and... Netflix and movies where that like a solitary tear comes by. I mean, just weeping. Can you picture Jesus that way? Does it bother you to picture Jesus that way? Why? Why? If it does, Jesus wept. The second time Jesus wept, we find. Um, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, this is he, he, he's coming in, and this is his kind of triumphal entry. And, I mean, he they don't know this. They think he's coming in to take over the disciples. But Jesus is like, I'm coming here to die. And so he comes in on this donkey, and as he crests the hill and he's looking over Jerusalem, he says this in Luke 19, 41. He says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over the city. Now, I will tell you right after this is when Jesus the second time comes in and overturns the tables and fashions the whip and he drives the livestock out of the temple courts. We talked about that last week. Like, that's right after this. Before that, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. So why? Why is he weeping? Let's read some more. He wept over it, verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now you are hidden from your eyes. Now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, you didn't know I was coming. See, desert still doesn't really, is he weeping because it's going to be destroyed? We know that what's going to end up happening in about 70 years, uh, well, about 40 years later, we know that Rome's going to come in and they're going to have had enough of, of, of Israel and they're just going to destroy the temple and they're going to send everybody out. And that's what we call the diaspora or the great dispersion where uh, they, they just Jews had to leave Israel. And they went all over and it ended up being a really wonderful thing for the gospel because they took it with them. <laughs> so even though it was a very sad moment in the, the nation of Israel, that was it for another almost 2,000 years before they became a nation again gospel went with them. That's not really why he's sad. We want to know why he's sad. We have to read a little bit before as he's preparing to crush the hill. So why is he sad over, and why is he weeping over Jerusalem? We read that in Luke 13. It says, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, 
Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord, which is his triumphal entry. So why is Jesus weeping here? I think for parents, if you have struggled over sorrow over your children, and that could be lots of things. Like we're we're in the middle of college visits and we're super excited about Emma going into college and we're super excited Jake's into college and watching them kind of launch into the world. I I'm gonna live through them a little bit, I hope. They'll let me. Uh I'm super excited, but there's a part of me that's sad because the age of them waking up in my house every morning is going to come to an end. I kind of balance that. The excitement of launching, the sadness that the season is coming to it. Now, I have two more, and those of you who know me know that um, I'm probably going to lose my memory before Malia um, is gr- launched into the world. You know, I, you know, I, we, Deidre and I joke about that, that the assisted living center is going to have to have a bus to take us to her high school graduation. But so we've got a ways away. But that doesn't change the fact that that my others are launching. Maybe you're, you've been through something way worse than that. Maybe with your kids, they've stumbled and fallen in so many ways, and you just your heart's broken for them. Maybe you're watching your child, maybe they're under your roof, but you're watching them do something or go through something right now and you don't know how to deal with it and you don't know how to help them and you're just struggling and you're sad. You're sad. This picture of Jesus looking over Jerusalem as the one who says, I have just so longed to bring you all together with me like a hen brings all her little chicks together and just protect you and bring you in and love you and show you what you were created for and let you experience the joys of of all that you were meant to experience. I I have so longed to bring you together and you've rejected me. You just rejected me over and over and over again. See, Jesus is weeping, not because of what they're going to do. As we talked about last week, Jesus had great compassion and forgiveness for every single human. Now, he had some harsh words for people, but he attacked systems. He didn't attack people. In fact, when Peter attacked a guard, he was like, Peter, put it away. And he, you know, heals the guard after Peter hacks his ear off. He didn't come for, to, to hurt people. When they nailed him to a cross, he looked down at the people who nailed him there, and you and I would not be thinking pleasant thoughts about them. And yet he said, ah, oh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus, his sorrow and sadness was of a people rejecting him. He felt great sorrow such that he wept. I want you to picture, if you think God has given up on someone that you love, I want you to picture this, that Jesus in this moment is weeping over people he loved that have walked away from him and his desire to find them. It's the parable of the lost sheep that he'll leave the 99 to go after the one. I want you to know God is not abandoning anyone. 
not your child, not your friend, not you. This is still what he longs to do, is to bring us together. It's really an incredible just look into the heart of Jesus who feels great sadness. In the garden we read this. We read part of the garden account when we talked about anxiety. It said, he said to his disciples that were there with him, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Let me translate. I am so sad. I wish I could just die. That's what Jesus said. Is it a sin to be sad? If it is, Jesus is not the Savior of the world because only a sinless Son of God could have died for our sins. Jesus was sinless and he looked at his disciples and he said, I am so sad, I just would like to die. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from me. In other words, God, can you rescue me from this sadness? As he was on that cross, the last thing that he would say is, Father, why have you forsaken me? See, your Savior, who loves you, wants to walk through life with you, is acquainted with every emotion you are acquainted with including this one. So where do we go from here? I hope I've made everybody sufficiently sad this morning. I'm glad you've joined us. If you're our guest, that's what we do. We make you sad. So in a hope not to... I, so I don't want to take us out of this, but I want us to have at least something be constructive moving forward. Because like I, I debated, should we, should we start with sadness and end with joy? And that's what we do way too much as preachers. We, we want to take you away from the deep, dark stuff too quickly. And the reality is, is you need to simmer in some sadness, some of you. Not, some of you are. Like, you don't need to drum up feelings of sadness. You are sad. But some, some of us need to simmer, need to marinate in this reality of sadness within our lives. Because the, the two big problems we have is, one, we... we try to get out of it too quickly, or it's kind of ugly twin, we deny that we even are sad. The second problem is equally as bad, if not worse, and that is that we never come out of sadness. So how do we do something constructive through these next this next week? So what, what type of sadness are you experiencing? There are some basic questions that, just like anxiety, our sadness can clue us into a few things. Are you feeling sadness over things you can change? Things you can change would be a broken relationship that you can go repair. It can be a child. It can be a friend. It can be a spouse. It can be a parent, a brother, a sister, cousin, co-worker, a boss. See, sometimes we kind of wreck things, and then we're sad about them, but then our ego pops up and we don't go deal with them, right? Like, I'm not going, I'm not. Like they can come here, but I'm not going there. Is the sadness over things you can change? Maybe it's that, you know, we talked about that death scroll and we're on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and we're just getting bad story after bad story after bad story. With every story we read, we can just feel our countenance dropping and our sadness growing. Maybe you just need to 
get off of social media. I wanted to, I'm, I want to do a blog post, and the title of the blog post is going to be, Should I Get Off of Facebook? And then when you open the blog, it's going to say yes. <laughs> That's it, whole blog. Um, it's going to take me a while to put that one together, but I think it's very accurate. And not because they're censoring you, but because it's costing you your life. It's costing you your relationships. I've talked to so many pastors who are, their, their sadness in part during this time is watching people they love, boom, fight social media. Breaks our heart. It's not what we got into this to do. But even beyond that, just the sense that negative story after negative story after negative story leads you to a place where Jesus is not. The world does not need us to sit and commiserate with them as if we have no hope. Is your sadness over things you can change? You can guess the response to that is go change them. Change them. Well, what about the sadness over things you can't change? A friend that died, a parent that's not there anymore. What about that child you haven't heard of and from, you haven't heard from them in years? How do you deal with that? Interestingly, I stumbled across a psychologist by the name of David Kessler. He says there are also some, some things causing us sadness right now that we can't put our finger on, but it's a universal form of sadness that we're all feeling right now as we're going through COVID. He calls this anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief. Ashley Ford tweeted this out about anticipatory grief. She said, you are watching people go through withdrawal from the emotional addiction to the myth of certainty. Let that, like read that by yourself for a minute. Think about that. Let that soak in. You are watching people go through withdrawal from the emotional addiction to the myth of certainty. And what does she mean by that? This is what David Kessler, a psychologist, said. He said, anticipatory grief is that feeling we get about what the future holds when we're uncertain. There's something bad out there. With a virus, this kind of grief is so confusing for people. Our primitive mind knows something bad is happening, but you can't see it. This breaks our sense of safety. We're feeling that loss of safety. And what they... What they mean by that is there, there's certainty that we flock to, certainty of the next meal, certainty of the next paycheck, certainty that our friends will always be there, that our children will always be there, that our parents will always be there, that our friends will always be there. There's a certainty that draws us in, and we're addicted to it, what Ashley Ford has said. We're addicted to the need for certain, to know how it's going to go, to trust it, to never worry about it, to not have to think about it. It's just going to happen. Doesn't that sound so good? I mean, like right now, to be so certain about what's going to happen, to feel good about how things are, and just to know it's always going to be like this. 
yet what COVID has done is it has taken all of our anticipation and turned it upside down so that we now are sad and we don't know why we're sad, but we're sad because we're withdrawing from certainty, which sounds bad. Jesus would say that's good. Certainty is not your friend. Like certainty in some things, that's our faith, our belief, our hope. Certainty in those things are, are things that kind of get us through this time, and which is why it's important that we don't stay sad, that people, especially when they know we're followers of Jesus, like if we're always, if followers of Jesus are always sad, like why does anybody want to accept that life? You know, why? We've kind of got an epidemic of, 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 of people that just want to be sad all the time, take selfies of themselves crying so that somebody will say, oh, I'm so sorry. Or they put passive-aggressive posts out. When somebody acts like this, it just breaks my heart, and I just wish they would stop. And, like, none of us know who it is. Is it me? They're talking about me. I mean, I haven't seen them in 30 years, but I'm just not sure. It might be me they're talking about. Some of our sadness is the, the problem or the opportunity of uncertainty right now. Maybe it's with work. Maybe some have lost a paycheck. Or you've hung on. I don't know how much longer we're going to be able to hang on. Some have watched their retirement go away. Some have gotten indebted now and they don't know how they're going to get out of debt. They don't know how they're going to move forward as a as a family. Politically, we we struggle with this too because if you're happy whoever is president is president, then you feel certain, you trust them, but if you didn't vote for whoever's president, you feel uncertain, and it's happened that way every time we've had a president. Same thing happens, which is why people get really inflamed during election time, and then if their their person wins, then all of a sudden they're just very calm and everything's good because my person's in because I have some certainty. I know what to expect. But when your person's not in, you'll be stressed out and upset and sorry and sad again. Certainty brings a kind of rest to us, but it also brings a kind of ambivalence to us. It brings that place where I don't have to think about things, I don't have to trust for things, I don't have to try things, I don't have to risk anything. I can just, I'm everything's good. Rest is good. A certain amount of certainty is good. Knowing that you have another paycheck coming is good. But when that certainty leads to ambivalence, it's not good anymore. Because then you're immune to anything God would do in your life because I'm ambivalent. I'm certain. I don't have to worry about anything. I don't have to trust God for anything. I just... A person who becomes addicted to certainty never tries for a promotion, never goes to their boss and says, I need a raise. A person addicted to certainty never asks out that person that they really want to ask out, but they're afraid they're going to say no. A person who's addicted to certainty never deals with their junk because at least they know their junk and they don't know what it's going to take to get out of their junk. A person who's addicted to certainty doesn't really live life. They just exist. I told you the thing I wanted to end with, and this is what I'm going to end with. 
is a, a Jewish practice for dealing with grief. We read throughout Scripture that there's a season for everything. Grief is for a season. Sadness is for a season. It is not a lifelong calling. You're not meant to be sad for the rest of your life. Even the most horrendous, painful things that can happen, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a parent, the loss of a job, whatever it is for you, you are not meant to grieve that for the rest of your life. Now, there are some things that you may ne you'll never forget, and there will always be a sadness of what could have been and what it no longer is. That's always going to be there, but, um, but it is for a season, and... and the Jewish people have a process for this, and I just thought I'd share it with you because it's very interesting. They recognize it's for a season, and so they dedicate a season to mourning, to grieving, to sadness. They, they dedicate a season that they practice, and I want to suggest this for some of you who are struggling to overcome your sadness. Perhaps this is a season for you to, to deal with your sadness, and there's five mourning periods that will last for the totality of a, a year, and then there are periodic things that you will practice beyond the year, just as a, a coping mechanism, as a way to remember and not to just ignore this loss, to recognize that it's there, but not to live in that loss either. The first period is called Ananut. When someone dies is the period from death to burials. We talked about it uh, not too long ago. After someone died, burial was very quick because they didn't have the same embalming techniques. We didn't have big freezers and morgues and things like that. Like, you want to get somebody uh, in a tomb as quickly as possible. So that just, you know, very few days from death to burial is a time of intense grief, which interestingly is very natural even today. I see this when people that struggle with someone who has died all the time. There's a very definable period of grieving from death to burial, something changes at burial, though. During this period of Anut, this is where you make funeral arrangements. That's where you're preparing for all the funeral and and like, like they do they do funerals. Like they pay groups of people to come do a funeral parade. I mean, it's a they're, they're professional mourners. It's really I mean they they feel big. There's no denying of sadness or feeling. They feel big. But this is not a time for morning practices. It's not a time for prayer services. There are no official uh, visits from uh, rabbi and friends and family. This is, you've got you to gotta take care of business here, and we're talking a couple of days here. We're not talking about a long period. After the burial, and it sets in that this is over and it's done because the initial period of grief when someone dies like there's kind of, there's still the thing, they're still here, we're still dealing with their body, we're still, you know, planning and our minds are busy and we've got lots to do, it keeps our minds focused on other things. But once the burial is over, now we fully are left without them. I do believe this is transferable to any sadness, by the way, this is just how they deal with death. The first seven days of mourning is called the Shiva. Shiva is literally seven days of you You literally just sit around. You just soak in the grief. Like for a week, you fully experience sadness. You don't deny it. You don't pretend it's not as bad. You fully welcome it. You bring it into you. And you literally just sit in this. The 
first three days you are just intense mourning. Like all you do is you just feel and you just wail and weep the first three of those seven days. And then the next four, you still mourn, but then you begin to reflect on them. You begin to reflect on the loss. You begin to reflect on the sadness because you can't stay in that deep sense of mourning no matter how hard it is. That's the first week called the Shiva. The Shaloshim is the next month. It's actually the first month, the first 30 days of mourning, beginning with the day of burial. That's where everybody is mourning. This is where you will go back to work. You will begin to have prayer services again in the synagogue, but you stop doing certain things. You, you, you don't enter, enter entertainment. You don't try to, to distract yourself or you don't try to pretend like you're not as sad as you are. For this next 30 days, you start entering back into the world again, but you still recognize you're going through, uh, through this morning. So there's no entertainment and men don't shave. They, they just let that go. That's somewhat of a sign of mourning and just for you to fully continue to live in this while re-engaging. The fourth stage of mourning is called the Yudbet Kodesh. This is for a year following the day of their death. The major things they do in the Yudbet Kodesh is that they will say a specific prayer at prayer services. They will try to keep themselves, interestingly, from going to happy events for a year. Like, we're not going to go there specifically to try to be happy. It's not that you can't be happy, but we're not going to specifically try to go and pretend that we're happy when really we're still mourning and grieving. And we're talking about deep grief here. Deep, deep grief. Especially that of a parent for a child. The end of the year the anniversary of the death is the Yartzit. The Yartzit. It's where you continue to say specific prayers at the synagogue. You light a memorial candle. And then you make a number of charitable contributions. You give. You rebirth. You begin to move on. You recognize there's new life. Keep moving. That's a year process. Here's what I want to suggest for you. Some of you are sad right now for things you can't explain, and you need to fully live in that period. You don't need to pretend it's not there. You don't need to put on a happy face. Like you need to, you need to mourn, grieve. I mean, you need to live in there. You need to let every feeling come. And then you need to begin to move on. Some of you have been grieving well over a year now. Well over a year. And you can't let it go. And I want to encourage you in this. Letting go of your sadness and letting go of your grief, no matter what kind of grief it is, is, is not about you pretending they didn't matter or that didn't matter to you. It's recognizing that life moves on. Be prepared to move on with it. Let me leave you with some homework. I have two questions for you to ponder over this next week if you are feeling sad. And most of us, to some degree, whether it's over uncertainty or something else, 
we are feeling sad. And so let me leave you with two questions. And then I'm going to say a prayer written by um, a Jewish writer over us. And then we're going to end. What are the things that you need to sit in sadness over? Or Shiva. What do you just need to sit in sadness over? What are you mourning? And, and, and you can't move forward if you don't have this period of time which you just really fully sit in it. What do you need to sit in sadness over? It's okay to sit in that sadness. For a time, not forever, for a time, sit in it. Like the Yartzeet, what are the things that you need to celebrate the anniversary of your sadness? You need to look forward to new life because Jesus is about new life. He's about moving you forward. When we start talking about joy, what we're going to find is that when Jesus talked about joy, that joy was wrapped up in understanding our life and our world and our circumstances in a bigger way than just simply we live and then we die. We never die. And so we see the world differently. And so when he makes us new, it's not that we move on without sadness. It's we look at sadness differently. It's not that we move on without anxiety. It's we look at anxiety differently. We don't move on without anger. We look at anger differently. I, there's a renewing that he wants to do within you. But what are the things you need to sit in? What are the things you need to recognize? You know what? I have mourned this long enough. I'm not going to forget that. I'm not going to forget this thing or this person. I'm not going to pretend like they, they didn't mean something to me, but I'm going to begin to move forward in life. I want you to sit in this sadness. Next week, we're going to start making the turn into some more positive emotions. This is one many of us feel now. And I would suggest to you that we can't move forward post COVID, as a church community, as families, as a people, if we don't deal with some of these emotions now. Can't wait. We need to deal with it now. Process them. Deal with them. This is the Jewish prayer. I want to pray with you, and then we're going to sing a song, and we're going to be done for today. Would you pray with me? When you are too sad to remember, may your sadness be felt as deeply as it needs to be. And may it lift in its proper time. May you understand that just because some people can't be there at your sadness doesn't mean they don't love you. May you be able to take pleasure in the pleasures of those around you even when you can't feel your own. May you not lose hope in the possibility of your own happiness even when it is out of your line of sight. Amen.